Welcome to Stockton to Malone. My name is Micah Utrecht. And I'm R.L. Stevens. We're back. We've been gone for a minute. Back, baby. It's been a long time. We had a lot of stuff going on in our lives in the last oh, few months. <laughs> I've been, uh, I was in Paris for a minute. First of all, I saw the pictures on Facebook. My man looked like he was chilling in the on the set of the first MIB movie from 97. <laughs> like he was in a white room with like circles all around. You know how Will Smith was trying to take the test in that, that bubble chair? <laughs> like you look like that's what the room looked like. What was this spaceship communism stuff that you were on? I was in the headquarters of the French Communist Party, which was, you know, one of the biggest communist parties in Europe for a long time, but now is in... Uh, sort of sad shape in some ways but that's their meeting room and it's real crazy because they've got this big building it's where their headquarters is it's where all their offices are and stuff but then they have this like mound that comes out of the ground that uh i was like it look it's a mound and it's their it's their meeting space and it looks like this like vision of the future from the 1970s or whatever but the guy who was showing me around was i was like yeah it looks like a mound coming out of the ground he's like Yes, well, do you think it looks a bit like a breast? And I was like, um, <laughs> well, that's you, the most <laughs> French thing that a man could say. So, but I, I was like, yeah, I guess it does kind of look like a like a boob. And he was like, well, that's like that's part of the whole thing is that all of these different communist parties had like uh, the meeting spaces or had, or whatever these 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 spaces like this. It looked like a boob because it was supposed to be like the party was the mother and it was like welcoming you <laughs> into her. I don't know, suckle at bosom. The bosom. Like, I don't know what the, the bosom was. of communism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. I didn't want to ask too many questions. But I don't. Maybe he was bullshitting me. Yeah. But that, that sounds, sounds like, like some something. Shit. Yeah, that you tell some stupid American. Yeah, exactly. And the Americans like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The communist bosom. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I respect yeah. the bosom. I respect it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I was in I was in Paris for a minute, and uh, that was fun. Paris is dope. Yeah. And uh, you've been out here. You you've been doing all kinds of stuff. You're, uh, you got your uh, the writings popping on Jacobin. There's, there's a few there's a few articles. Folks, got a couple videos. Yeah, if folks want to read your articles, they can go to jacobinmag.com. Check them out. Also, uh, yeah, you're doing these Facebook Live videos where you're talking about all the articles that you write. The, and here's the thing about those. My, my man Micah right here is connected to those videos for sure because behind me, I got the Kanye posters. I got Jesus with me at all times. <laughs> I, keep a, I keep two Jesus. At all. In limited edition, you can't get photo. You can't get photos like that. You can't get, I mean, limited edition. There's one, one edition. One edition. One edition. It's exclusive. Well, I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast before, but like after you got hit by the car, it was too perfect because you had already started at the gap, and now you're rising <laughs> up just like Kanye, and then you got in the car accident. Just through the like wire. Kanye, so you're through the wire. So some comrades from the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, we were all talking about, like, what could we give this man to try to make him feel better as he's recovering from this car accident? And I was like, I, I didn't hesitate a moment. I was like, we got to make this man a poster of him going, they can't stop me from rapping, huh? <laughs> Can, Can they, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it when I finally got it, it made my day like it it's made my year actually like if i get married that's going in the crib like i'm not if, if i can't keep it we're getting a divorce annulment it's over like this is the fit my favorite thing that i've ever had this is so straight up i haven't felt this good about a gift since christmas 93 dog you know what happened my mom Nintendo came 64. through no this is even better than the 64 which i got this is even better See, this is Christmas 93 is when my mom hooked me up 
with the Power Rangers action figures. I got the Black <laughs> Ranger and the Red Ranger on the same day. This is that good. It's two. It's just like it. Okay. Jason two. and Zach. Shout out to Jason and Zach. That's right. Shout out to J- actually. You know what? Uh, dang, what are the name? Walter Jones is Zach, <laughs> and uh, Austin St. John is Jason. That's right. That's my Power Rangers step, knowledge, Step to son. this man with try, try to up? call him out on his What's Power up? Rangers knowledge. What's up? You oh. better come correct if you are about to challenge this man with some Power Rangers trivia. Yo, I saw the movie by myself. <laughs> you did. You did. You by myself. In a, I went, okay, listen, listen. I know this has nothing to do with what this show is about, <laughs> but you know, we've been, a, we've been away for a while and y'all really need to hear this. Look, your boy went to the Power Rangers movie by myself. And I was in the theater. Because you dragged me to that fucking Captain America. I'm like, no, I'm not going back to this shit. I'm yeah. not going to one of these. Right. I can't trust your taste in movies ever It's again. horrible. I have horrible taste in movies. And I sat in that theater next to this little kid. And this little kid was like talking and all this stuff. And I couldn't. I was like, man, at first I wanted to be like, shut the hell up. I'm trying to watch Power Rangers. But then I was like, dang. I'm trying to get in my nostalgia zone over right. here. I can't be 30, dang near 30 years old. <laughs> Telling like a little seven year old, shut the hell up! It is Power Rangers movie. Like I can't. You don't know what this means to me, <laughs> right? I can't do that. That's whack as hell. And then here's the kicker. Now everybody thinks that I live my life on the internet, right? <laughs> this is not true. And and I wish I could have in this moment, but I knew I couldn't because I would look whack as hell. Remember that? Remember that dude in Philly, I think, who saw those kids fighting and he broke up the fight, right? Do you remember this? Oh man, okay, this is famous video. This black dude came up and he was like, y'all don't need to be fighting. And it went viral. The city gave him him, like the key to the city or something like that. He he had news stuff. So when I was on my way to the Power Rangers movie, there's like this little projects over there and these black kids were fighting, right? And I was like, young men, young men. And I stopped it, right? I was like, brother, brother. I, 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 I intervened, right? And then I wanted to say it on Facebook, like, yo, guess what I just did? But I was like, dang, this brother already did it. So then people are going to think I'm lying. <laughs> I can't even no, do they're it. No, they're going to think that you set it up. You paid these <laughs> right. kids like 20 bucks each. <laughs> yeah. like, right. I can't even do it. Why do good deeds if I can't? Humble brag about it on Facebook, okay? That's the life we live right now. That's the era we're in, all right? Uh, <laughs> well, um... Uh, total. I don't even know how to transition away from, <laughs> away from that. But uh, we got a uh, an interview here for this episode with, uh, uh, funnily enough, with uh, your roommate's uh, mom. Yeah, that's right. Paula Milky uh, is a resident of Falcon Heights, Minnesota, and that is where Philando Castile was murdered by the police. And so I wanted to do this interview where we talk about the movement that's happened in the year since then. And really, it's an inspiring story because Paula is like a middle-aged white woman, right? That did not know Philando at all. And then she rallied, after after his death, she rallied a bunch of people to go to every single city council meeting, to do all of these this door knocking. They put out, they made t-shirts, they put out yard signs, they pressure, like, yo, there's this part in here where she she's at a meeting and one of the city council members gets Philando's name wrong and then she like jumps up and she's like 
this petition is for the resignation of Pam. Like she goes in, in the middle of this meeting, right? And she just had gone from someone who hadn't done any activism at all, really, to um, being inspired by her son, my roommate, um, Luke, who uh, had been doing a lot of stuff with the fourth precinct shutdown after the Jamar Clark killing. He had, he had done stuff with like Occupy Homes and, and foreclosure defense. And she kind of... And just to be clear, you're talking about a separate police shooting. Oh yeah, separate police shooting. And, and then there's the another one with this area. Justine Diamond thing, you know, that finally right. got the police chief to right. resign in Minneapolis. But like, um, there's this whole story here of like what it means to actually get involved for everyday people and how that experience of like fighting together can be transformative personally. And so that's that's the real thing that we wanted to bring to you with this with this one. It um the 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 fight is ongoing, so it's not like it's something where it's like and then they won like at the with the like end credit scene. It's more about like the journey. Well, and there's still the question. You know, her her interview raises a lot of questions, right? Like whether or not even the strategy that they're pursuing is like the correct one. But that's not really the point. It's more about what it looks like, like the kind of personal transformations that happen when people like uh, Paula just uh, decide to engage in this kind of uh, activism. Like the, the, no one like, you know, no one uh, told her this is something she should do. She was just like so personally moved by it. And there's lots of very interesting stuff about her own relationship with Luke, who's a, her son, who's a, a, an organizer now in Chicago. And then there's, there's lots of like fascinating stuff about what the personal stuff of, uh, of, of organizing for, for political change actually looks like. And uh, now we recorded this and then your boy went off and went Terry Gross in PR uh, on some of these segments. We, well, we had you had some technical difficulties, right? Yeah, so we had gotta... to record the interview twice, and then I was trying to do these voiceovers. And so we've been... We're going to take you into a bunch of different places on the, on the total uh, length of this podcast, from you yelling about the Power Rangers to... But then, she was totally <laughs> yeah. transformed at the city council. <laughs> yeah. And Micah has the voice for it. And so he should be the one doing them. And uh, for some reason, I'm on the thing. Ah, well, ah. Like, so, yeah. Uh, I hope you all get something out of it. Um, I know I enjoyed talking to Paula a lot. And she's actually running for city council herself. And so, breaking, breaking news. Uh, but... Um, I'm really excited to see where, where things go from here. I don't even want this uh, intro to end, though, because the folks obviously can't see us. They don't know that we're, like, standing around this mic, like, like we're, we're like, in the middle of a, of rap a freestyle. City. Yeah, like, exactly. like the old Rhapsody freestyle yeah, like in Cameron, the basement. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, I've never felt more like a rapper than I do right now. <laughs> I'm like, they, it even has the spit guard in front of the mic. Like, it's for real. Juan, Juan, Juan. Can I can I get a little what's up, Juan? What's up? Yeah, Juan Shout is. Out to Juan. This is Juan's studio right now. We done upgraded. We done came out the little the the clo- the supply closet, <laughs> and we got we got spit guards on mics now, son. What's good? What's good? That's it. <laughs> or should you just say like? Say oh yeah. And now here's the uh, here's wait, the interview with Paula Milky. Wait, say it again because just give it give it space first. Let it breathe. Let it breathe. Let it breathe. And now here's an interview with Paula Milky. My son Luke was involved in the occupation of the fourth precinct in Minneapolis after Jamar Clark was shot and killed by Minneapolis police. And 
I knew that he was there, and he was there starting fires. I knew that he was there helping with food. And, and Thanksgiving Day, he had dinner at our home, and I had made double of some of the items we had for dinner, and he was bringing food there, and he had prepared some food to bring. You're hearing these things, and I knew that he was part of the out on 94, when they shut down 94, and arrested. And this wasn't his first time that he had done activism. And I had gone from the early years of like, why are you doing this? And it was all so new to me. I didn't know anyone who had done it. And then, then evolved to admiring the passion and the conviction and just learn from him. And then the hard thing for me was this this shooting of Philanda Castile by a police officer happening blocks from her home. Didn't expect it to happen here. And it happened just within days of Luke moving. And right away we reached out to our sons. It was a very emotional phone call. And um, and I told Luke that you're not here, but I'll be your arms and legs. Just coach me through this. And, and that's kind of a commitment that I made to him. But just things, Flanda was killed in the evening on July 6th, and just things started coming out in the news on July 7th, and I I walked over to the the makeshift memorials, and, and already children had signs about Mr. Phil, and, and flowers were there, and, and residents were there, and it was just, you just had to go, and I brought this container of chalk, because I'm a, a, a writer and a word person, and I wanted people to express themselves, and then when I would come home from work the next couple of days, I would go, and I would I would read the messages that people people wrote, and, um, and I just, uh, Wellstone was important to us here in Minnesota, and his motto was, we all do better when we do better. And I just started thinking about that, and Wellstone's colors are green, and our city's colors are green, and I had t-shirts made up that said, we can do better. And I kept waiting for our city to do something, do something to, to react to this, and nothing was happening. And the teachers at our elementary school had, and staff had organized a walk, because they wanted to assure their children of color, their students, that this isn't okay, and you're safe here, and we care about you. And they organized a march from the elementary school to the memorial site. And I, I came with my box of t-shirts and just gave them out to staff, but I gave them out to, to people I knew. I gave one to Mayor Lindstrom and I was wearing one and we, we walked and it was a pretty emotional walk to be with these children and their, and their fathers and, and just the sadness around it all. And, um, and then our city held because- a to to know that I mean how do you explain to the children that this man was killed by a police officer but he worked in schools and that was such a part of it the signs and the notes from the children at the memorial site was Mr. Phil and to learn that he called him Mr. Phil and you start hearing people sharing their stories about Mr. Phil and uh, and Chelsea Elementary School isn't where he had worked in the summer uh, was is just on the corner of Falcon Heights and St. Paul. I mean, it's just right there. Philando's life mattered, but the city council didn't get it. Listen as Paula recounts a city council session days following Philando's murder. There was a special meeting of the city council and then there was this large listening session and it was the, the city 
hall was just packed with people and it was residents coming to say, I don't have any problems with policing in St. Anthony. They've always been responsive. And then packed with people were there to share their stories and, and share how they had told council before about racial profiling they had seen or they stopped having, they warned friends of color about be careful when you're driving in Falcon Heights. And you just started hearing this and just realized how you, the perception that you had in your in your city wasn't what was really true and happening. And it was just, it was just a very sad feeling. What, did any stories stand out that you recall from early on? Um, I, I serve on our library board and when I, I had a manager tell me an employee was afraid to drive through our city. And when I heard from, I heard from our mom, a mom that she would tell her son when he drove to the library, the typical route often is to come up selling. She told him to go Lexington. Lexington is not part of Falking Heights. It's a couple blocks over. And that really hurt me as a library board member. And then, or when she told me how she tells her son, when you're coming to Falcon Heights when you're at the top of the hill and snelling, and then I made myself listen to her words and drive, go and drive that route. And I just like, oh, this is right at the point where she tells her son, now turn your cap around and put your hands at 10 and two so that for when you come into Falcon Heights. And that was, that was just a really sickening thought to, to know that you had to warn your, your teenage son, your black son on, on how to drive when you're coming into Falcon Heights. And, and these were not conversations that you were having with your, your children. No, no. I when people tell me about educating their their sons about driving while black and just like wow, I wasn't even never crossed my mind on to do it. And just what a different world. It was just a really harsh wake up call. As I said, I started out with the this T shirt, and one of the things that it I did. I, I just felt so bad. I, I went to the governor's mansion one evening on of my own, which and uh, the, the occupiers were there and they were having a, an evening. They called it like a block party that night. They had music and food. And I went and I, I met, met Jacob Latta and he was one of the key organizers of it. And I just gave him a hug and said, I'm from Falcon Heights. And I'm so sorry, but I, I, I believe our city can do better. And I was wearing my shirt and, um, and then I just wanted to bring people together who were feeling the way that I felt. So I went back and I listened to the recordings of the city council meeple, meetings and people who had shared and captured their names. And I didn't know these people necessarily and uh, and when you talk at a community forum you have to give your street address so I caught I captured addresses and I, I I drove I took some of those addresses and I drove around town and knocked on doors and said I heard you speak or I left them a note and I heard you and reach out to me and and um, so I set a date and held a meeting it was the afternoon of my birthday and uh, people didn't know it didn't matter and just I said, this is kind of a weird way to spend your birthday, but it means a lot to me. And so we had this meeting and had an agenda and we just shared what we'd been reading and we just became, started becoming a resource for each other. And I uh, said, so, well, we have to have a name so that we can connect people. We wanted to set up a, a group Facebook page. And that's, we just looked at my shirt and said, Falcon Heights, we can do better. 
and that's what it started on. And we pretty much have met every Sunday since July 31st, with the exception of a couple, uh, because maybe too many people were out of town or it was a holiday or we knew there was a break in city council meetings. So most of our meetings were timed around and themed around what is the agenda, what's happening with our city. And one of the things that we looked at right away, we learned that the agendas are posted on Friday and partly because our group included a former mayor and a former city council member. So we learned about how our city works, government works. And we looked at these agendas and one of the things we learned that Flanda was never on the agenda. So that was one of our initial charges that we were going to be at every city council meeting and every meeting ends with community forum and we were going to talk about Flando. So it was never, never could be just brushed under, brushed away. And you've done that for a year now. Yes, yes. and. Uh, and in the beginning, there were many people there, and the those the community forum could go on for a very long time. And I would say that for the last um, several months, there's been a handful, and there's three faithful black allies who are there. They call us they call us their white allies, and we call them their black allies. And we there's maybe. Um, down to 10 or so, but we're always there. And just today, uh, Tyrone, he's the head of the African-American Leadership Council. He texted me saying, hey, Paula, is there a special meeting in Falcon Heights? So he, I, I hear from him pretty regularly, just asking, is confirming that there's a council meeting tonight. And yep, yep, see you there. And uh, just try to reach out and support each other, making sure that we all know what's what's happening in the city. That the large listening session where people are pouring out their stories about policing in Falcon Heights and our council sat there listening and pretty stone-faced. And uh, the last person to speak was Valerie Castile, Philando's mom, and talking about her son. And she ended with, Falcon Heights, you need to get this right. And, and that was a feeling for so many of us. We're this small city, five city council members. We don't have these layers of bureaucracy. If anyone can get it right, it should be Falcon Heights with this progressive city, right? And she said that, and then it was time for the council to kind of react and talk. And, and it got to this one council member, Pam Harris. And Pam said, I really enjoyed the stories about Philandro and the children. And she had his name wrong, which I was like, oh my gosh. And then just, and it was like, she, it was a comment that you would make at an at end of a memorial service when people shared their favorite memory of a loved one. It wasn't doing, it was like, weren't you listening to what people are saying about policing in our city? And I was this crazy woman wearing my We Can Do Better shirt and I just jumped up and I had a clipboard with me and I'd been gathering signatures and I scratched out what's at the top of my page and I made it for a petition and I yelled out, I have a petition asking for the resignation of Pam Harris and I just started walking up to people and getting signatures. And um, I serve on our library board and Pam Harris serves on the board of the Friends of the Library. So the first thing I did when I got home, I had to call the library chair and say, I just have to let you know, it'll be in the media tomorrow that I asked for Pam Harris to resign from our city council. And uh, that was, uh, it, yeah, so that did happen the next day. And so it, it definitely changed the relationship that I had with Pam. Organizing has consequences. 
We tend to think of those consequences in terms of social transformation at a grand scale, but it also has consequences for our personal relationships. In a small town like Falcon Heights, those social consequences can be intense. Let's listen to Paula describe how her organizing and activism has impacted her social relationships in her community. I made sure that I was wearing that shirt pretty much at every city council meeting. And then there was a neighborhood gathering and the host is a friend of mine. She, bless her heart, she said, thank you for all that you're doing. I think if two people wore, came wearing matching shirts that it would spark a conversation, but nobody wanted to talk about it. So then I would test things and I would just say, so how do you feel about Philando shooting? And people would shut me down pretty fast. And an answer that I got from people, and it was always the council's answer was, well, we wanna wait until there's, to see what the charges are. We wanna see how this plays out. And no no one was wanted to say, we can't take sides. There's just, there's so many things we don't know. And, and people just, I think finally conversation started to change a little bit when John Choi charged Yanis with manslaughter. I know when I heard the news, I was at work and I just screamed, yes, yes, yes. Because it felt like you were just hitting your head against the wall and you just being noisy. And um, it felt like then people started to listen and think maybe, oh, maybe you, you've got something there. But through it all, um, no friends wore my t-shirts. My, <laughs> no, I, we had yard signs printed up saying Falconites, the nation is watching. And no friends that I had from for years put it up, uh, with an exception to a couple. How did that feel? Well, some people was like, oh, I, I just, I never put up yard signs, and you know, I would have liked, I would like support, and it, it, it took a long time, and then it was way into it when I started hearing from people, thank you, thank you, and it's like one of the most gratifying times because we would. And, you know, I would, I would ask for Luke, what should we be doing? And I was, I called a lot of people. I called Jason Soul from NAACP and said, Jason, what can we do to get our council move? And, and we still quote him. Jason said, your council is putting you to sleep. We said, we know, but we can't figure out what to do and how to get him to move. And we'd always come back to, we have to have a petition. And, and many people are like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with petitioning. And it finally, it came down to, um, we have to end this contract and it's like it's now or never we have to do this petition and we got enough people on board and that is going to be a day that I'll never forget and uh you know working on our talking points and getting them together and um we had an activist a young activist come and do training and people like oh we don't do training we've been talking about this for months and it was great she trained us and then it was said okay now role play we all looked into like whoa we need to train we need to practice but i looked around my living room and there were 22 of us white middle-aged old people and we had our clipboards and we were ready and we said, okay, let's go out and we'll come back for lunch and we'll talk about it. And we were just so excited. And to know that within that first weekend, 222 people signed our petition. And, and my first door I knocked on, he said, oh my gosh, I've never experienced the kind of policing that I have in other cities that I have in St. Anthony. I'm just here visiting my mom. And so many people 
you know, we were scared to do this and we came back at lunch, we came back at the end of the day and the most common response we received from anyone was, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. That was affirmation that we weren't crazy. This, this little group that kept going to every meeting and taking notes and, and we were took notes and we posted our meeting notes and we got together and talked about, okay, these are, this is the schedule for this week. We had these three meetings and we would divvy up the schedule and then we'd come back and share our notes. And we came back with, and, and resolutions. We wrote resolutions, we'd bring them to meetings. And so much of it centered around the contract. One of the th items in the contract was that the city council could mandate that the chief police come and take questions. And so that was one of our very first resolutions because at our first meeting, Bobby Thomas was with us and Bobby Thomas is in his 80s, black, moved in Falcon Heights in 76, March in the civil rights. And he said, I wanna ask the chief some questions. And we wanted to know about what kind of training do our police officers get? Do they ticket at their own discretion? Do you have a policy for this ticketing? And we just had some things we wanted to know about policing in our city. And so we drafted this letter on Bobby's behalf and gathered signatures and presented this and demanded that the chief banks have come and take our questions, take questions. And we said, is that going to be adversary? We just take some questions. This is our first aid training. Why wasn't first aid administered right away? And, and then we looked and read the contract. And in the end, we felt like we knew the contracts better than the council. And that was one of the pieces in the contract. Council could demand that the chief come to a meeting. And they never, never pushed, never asked. And we kept pushing. And then one day they got back to us and just to pacify us said, okay, Chief Mangseff will meet with, we can do better. Well, that made us mad because we all know our public meeting laws, open meeting laws. You can't give a handful of citizens. And we didn't feel that that was, that who are we, that we could have a meeting that wouldn't be open to others. So we just started spreading the word and inviting the media because we thought what he said should, others should hear and we wanted when to be able to share it. That was in um, probably de December timeframe. I'd have to look back and, and get the exact date, but yeah, they they thought we'd go away by giving us a, our own our own meeting, and we asked to hold it at City Hall and held it and just kept growing and growing and and first we had some uh, person there saying media can't be here, and we didn't we didn't back down and media got to come to our meeting. Change doesn't happen if you sit quietly. So we knew we had to be to be loud, and we didn't want residents to forget what happened in our city, and we didn't want our city council to forget. And so uh, that was one of the things we we did was look at besides attending every meeting and looking at. Maybe we weren't going to go occupy. I mean, we, we talked to Luke and he tells ideas like, oh, wait a minute, we, we're all working during the day. It'd be hard for us to go and just occupy the, this, uh, the work setting of one of the council members. So we couldn't maybe do some of those things, but we had to keep coming up with what could we do to keep it in, in the media. And Luke's, the research that Luke did helped a lot, garner media coverage about uh, showing the 
the racial profiling that was happening in policing in our city. Uh, we brainstormed events. We were going to hold a, a clinic on people could have their broken taillights, and thankfully people brought to our attention that you're asking people to drive down Larpenter with a broken taillight. You know, that's kind of making light of being ticketing, so we canceled that event. Uh, we did things. Um, we... The memorial site people were still putting a lot of flowers out and we decided we'd come up with a we called it a pop-up memorial so we a member's daughter-in-law was an architect a, a professor art professor at the u of m helped we just pulled people together and we made a memorial we connected with the castile family and held a memorial and invited media to come and it was a and black lives matter to come and have a part in it and I had about 140 people come and just trying to just don't let people forget what happened. We were just trying to do as much as we could on our end because the governor's occupation was shut down by that point. And uh, so we were just looking at what else can we do? We just we were relentless. Paula and Falcon Heights, we can do better. We're gaining momentum. They kept the story in the press and they kept the pressure on the city council. But this movement didn't happen in a vacuum. What was the relationship between this group of mostly middle-aged and older white people and Black Lives Matter? So Black Lives Matter started out right away with occupying the governor's mansion. And then that was shut down. And then a smaller group splitted off and occupied Falcon Heights City Hall. And we learned that it did bring up breakfast and food. And they were just there for a few days. And then there was a... A, a group split off that was um, AR-14, and it was young activists that were, and so there were a couple different groups happening, the Justice for Orlando, Black Lives Matter, St. Paul, uh, different groups, and many of them were coming to city council meetings and sharing during the community forum and being loud and, and just like us and, and demanding change in the police contract. And I know um, there was a, a very heated moment at a city council meeting where the young activists had gone to the mayor's house and did a, a peace circle and they invited him out to into a circle and they recorded it and shared it on their Facebook page and just asked him really good questions and he answered them and he told them about how democracy works and he come to a meeting and he encouraged them to come and this was a really turning point in a lot of this activism for us and and help bridge the groups together. He encouraged them to come to a city council workshop. And at this point, the city council was going to talk about forming a task force. This was, we had put together a resolution months ago asking for a citizen's task force to look at policing in our city and make recommendations for how policing could change. Maybe change the type of ticketing uh, and change how complaints were handled and just have a, a, a citizen's review board and just had put that together and and the mayor finally came up with his own resolution. He was going to share it with the city council at this workshop. And so the youth really believed they could come and have a voice there. And the meeting, the city council workshop is one you can't participate, you can only listen. And the city council didn't change their format. So they sat and they had one mic they passed around so it was hard to hear and they were sitting around their table and they had their backs to it. And this room was packed. People wanted to talk about changing the contract and forming this task force. 
And Mayor Lindstrom said, but we don't have data. And the room exploded because the data had already been published in the media that showed the racial profiling. So when he said, I don't have data, it, it just lit a spark in the room and people became very vocal. And, and there was all this yelling going on in the room. And someone was like, wait, we gotta have this task force. This is the one thing we can get our council to agree on. We've worked so hard and people are yelling, you've worked hard, look at these black activists. And there was just yelling and and John Thompson and Chuck Lutesky and a group were just yelling at each other. And then I don't know what it was that broke and they just embraced and hugged. And that story was published in the media and John and Chuck exchanged phone numbers and, and met one-on-one -on -one and it just, we knew we were fighting for the same thing. And, uh, and John, um, he's been at many meetings that we have and been at, and um, so we were just working together. Uh, they took on maybe a bigger role because they were attending St. Anthony City Council meetings. They were um, still uh, fighting for change within Minneapolis and St. Paul. Governor Dayton had formed a task force. So they were spread thinner, and we kept our focus on Falcon Heights because that's yeah, where we you... need to make change. Can you explain what that focus actually meant in practice? One of the very first things that we were setting and tracked down was the contract with St. Anthony. So our city had contracted for 22 years and we, we were able to find online different versions and the contract really hadn't changed much, uh, except that it had gone from being a three-year contract to the last time around being a five-year contract with this annual opt-out. And the crazy part to us was Flanda was killed on July 6th, and our city council could have opted out of that contract on July 15th with no financial ramifications. And they had a special meeting with the lawyers and opted not to. And then after that, there's like, well, if we ended early, it's going to cost the city money. And the part when we started looking at the contract, and even to hear our city manager explain this, that the crazy, so the city council started finally talking about after a while that it's not a good contract, it's a bad contract. And what made it especially bad was the contract was based that it could only be broken on, on quantitative data. If say our contract was for 24 hour policing and maybe they only did 18 hours of policing, then the contract could be broken but there was no moral clause in this contract. There was nothing about police behavior that made it, that you could break it. So that just seemed so crazy. We had this police officer shoot someone and kill someone, murder someone during a traffic stop, and that wasn't breach of contract. And so it wasn't always so much just ending the contract, but end it and rewrite it and make it a better contract that at a minimum that we were pushing for to change the contract and the contract. And we just, we weren't going to give up on that. They didn't give up on pursuing the contract in Falcon Heights, but it required them to do things that they weren't comfortable with. I'd say everyone in the group has saying, I've never done anything like this. So it stretched all of us. And then some of you know, we often had to have conversations like, oh, I don't know that I'm comfortable with that, but I would do this. And so just, 
you know, making sure that we talk to people, talk to other people, um, and just being at meetings, bringing it up on your own. And, you know, I went from being at this, this neighborhood gathering where people didn't really want to talk to me about it. And then the day that we did the petition, by then in the city, people were coming around and realizing that what happened when, you know, when there was this manslaughter charge and just um, hearing, and we, we tried, we made sure that we were sharing some, some pretty inappropriate things that council members were saying. We just started talking about it and all of a sudden we had people following us and hearing, listening to us more. So we kind of grew that. Like what? Well, What's an example of Well, like when a city council member said, you know, um, when he said at a, a meeting that, well, it's not always about race, you know, it, it's about poverty and, you know, just, uh, just saying that poverty was a factor and um, economics and and just one of our, our members, I just, she just, when she stood up and said, I am a woman, I am Muslim. I'm not wealthy and I take offense at what you said, or just feel like they didn't have their filters on and they were just managing to, to make some rather racist remarks during these council meetings. And just, and just, I know that some black activists made them uncomfortable and, and just, um, stone face wouldn't respond, wouldn't give them eye contact. And that was one of the things we called them out at several meetings that you weren't being respectful to people who are coming here or, or, you know, they made a point that the task force, they wanted to have people talk about making our city safer for residents and guests. And yet black activists would come to our, our meetings and they just, we didn't feel that they were treated respectfully or listened to or they would challenge them. And where do you live anyway? And, and that came up just a couple of weeks ago, a white resident at a city council meeting, look at one of the black ad activists and said, I shared my address, what's yours? And he said, I'm a citizen of the nation. I'm just here to ask for change. Melanie was one of the leaders chosen by the city to interact with black community leaders, as well as the residents raising so much noise. She was able to get on the agenda and introduce items and to talk about her support for the police. And that really created a challenge for Paula. Here's what she has to say. There was one meeting that a recommendation she did. She had wanted to create an awards program for volunteer of the year. And so we were always saying like, how did Melanie get on the agenda? It was always, we were always trying to figure out how people got on the agenda because we were trying to get ending the contract on the agenda. So that was one of the things we, we studied and joked about was like, how do you get on the agenda for the city council? And Melanie got on the agenda to talk about her idea for a volunteer of the year award. So she gave this presentation about how the person would be picked and how they would be honored. And then she dropped this bombshell. At the end, she said, and I propose that we name it the Philando Castile Volunteer, Falcon Heights Volunteer of the Year Award. <laughs> and uh, like, whoa. And one of our black allies came up and said, you're going to name an award in your city for a man that was, you murdered? It's, Philando never belonged to Falcon Heights. He was murdered in Falcon Heights. So that, that and the was, police chief was still attending Yanez's uh, um, trial at this point, right? Right. That was crazy too. That was one of the things that 
uh, yeah, he and other officers would be in trial and sit in the family section. And this, and the council had nothing to say to this, and neither did in any of the people that the, under the city's authority, right? No, no, they. But they wanted to name this uh, this award after him. Right, right, and I think that they. Um, I think maybe some of them were shocked. I've never heard it really brought up again. And Melanie had had discussed her award ahead of time with the mayor, but that was her surprise piece that she put in there on her own. Who is Paula Milky now? Relentless. <laughs> I've always been known for someone that you tap when you want to get something done, but there was... There was a lot of tenacity behind this, and um, you just keep going. And and uh, I put myself in some situations that were way out of my comfort zone, like showing up at the mansion and being on 94 the evening that the verdict was announced. I mean, I, I said, I can't be home. I need to be with people who share this this drive and to to be there at the Capitol and then to march and then I was like, well, we're going on 94. Like we're going on 94 and closing down 94. And uh, um, you know, I I would say that I I can see myself doing it again. I mean, I will I will be always be selective of what things I'm going to put my passion behind because it, it's draining. It takes a lot of commitment. Um, you know, just today, I can tell you one thing that's changed. Uh, I own a business and on every Tuesday at five o'clock, two, three cars pull up and park in front of my building and these elderly people get out and they have done this for more than a decade rallied for peace. They stand with their peace signs on the Franklin Avenue bridge. And today I, I was, today I looked out and I saw this woman and she's older. I said, yeah, I'm going to do it her way when I'm her age. Because if you're standing for a long time holding a sign, your hands fall asleep. And I looked at her and she had a string around, attached to her sign and she had the sign hung around her neck. I said, that's how I'm going to do it when I'm her age. <laughs> So you, so you're in, you're in it for the long haul. Yeah, because you know what, uh, there was time when you thought, oh, look at those crazy people, and now you look at it and think, there, it is a really emotional binding experience to be surrounded by people who share your conviction and your passion for change. And your son, and your relationship with your son, like, how has that actually changed? Because now you know what, what that fire feels like, right? Like, has it, how does, how does that feel to know him in a different way? It's great admiration for what he's done. Some things like, whoa, I would never go that far, Luke, like chaining myself to, handcuffing myself to a barrel filled with cement. I don't know that I would do that, but if you feel passionate enough, yeah, maybe, maybe. 
Um, I thought of him when I was doing marches, and I thought, oh, that was Luke's role, being the marshal, and it just gave you um, a better understanding of the role that he had taken and, uh, and admiration. The, the struggle's not over, obviously. No. The contract hasn't been canceled yet. Um, the verdict was a not guilty. Um, there's, so there are all these setbacks, and, and, and the, there's not been a firm resolution to this. So what keeps you going? What, what, what's the, you said you were relentless, but what is emotionally, what's underneath that? You know, um, what a piece of it that's been frustrating that this opt out for the contract is July 15th and we still haven't, the city hasn't ended the contract. And a disappointment for us is that the only reason the city started to looking outside of St. Anthony, looking to other sources for, for policing was a resolution that was passed by the St. Anthony City Council that put the liability on Falcon Heights if there was a police stop that went awry. They put the liability on Falcon, and that was what angered and spurred the change from the city council to to looking to change policing, because we can't go for it. And, and to hear a council member saying, we never we never stopped having trust or faith in St. Anthony and look at what they did to us. And that saddened us to know that was what is bringing on change. It wasn't the voices that they've heard from the last 11 months, 12 months. And so now what we're looking at is, is uh, there's two city council positions open and vetting people to be candidates to run, and so we need a change in leadership, and uh, that's that's our our emphasis right now. The entire movement made them have to reflect on what exactly their community was and how they were going to approach these issues going forward, and more importantly, who they were as people. Uh, you know, for all of us. It was this wake-up call that we thought we were this progressive city, and what we learned is that we're not. We're, we had skeletons in the closet that we didn't know, or maybe we knew and and didn't want to acknowledge the the policing. Um, we had a conversation where people said, "Why is our city so white?" and started to explore and learn that there was redlining in this city and. So there's one of the commitments we have is to that has come from this is that we we can't just act like this never happened. We need to capture this. And there's been conversations about uh, videotaping people now, and it's fresh in their minds of how they felt. And uh, maybe we do a play around this. We do a story about this. Make it part of the lesson plan for children in Falcon Heights. We just we don't want this story to go away. We don't want people to forget what happened when we weren't paying attention is I think the best lesson that I can take out of this and that's something I, I we went on to stay committed to is we can't just bury this.